Bibles to John chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 19 through 34. Verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So the title for this afternoon's message is, Who Are You? So who are you? How would you answer that question? I suppose it would somewhat dependent upon the circumstances. If you were invited to a party by someone, you might say, I'm so-and-so's friend. Or if you were at a family reunion, you'd say, I was the grandchild or child of so-and-so. If you met a complete stranger, you might give them your name initially. And if you felt comfortable enough, you might speak to your vocation or your role uh, at work. If you were my son in a park, you might, you know, follow your older brother over and declare, I'm his brother, which he does frequently. In each of these situations, we tell people what we think is most important for them to know about us. What is most important for this person to know about me? And this is also John's aim in responding to this delegation that's been sent from Jerusalem. So let's look first at the identity of John the Baptist as it's articulated in 19 through 23. And the focus of this section, beginning of verse 19, is on the testimony that John gives about his identity. 
So the leading Jews of Jerusalem have sent an official delegation of priests and Levites from Jerusalem to try and identify who John understands he is. And they specifically ask if he's three distinct people. They ask him, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Or are you the Christ? And to each of these inquiries, he responds negatively. He then announces what he understands his purpose to be, to fulfill the role of the voice crying out in the wilderness prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40. So he understands his role to be that of giving testimony. And that's the word that's used in verse 19. This is the testimony of John. And it's actually the uh, word that we get our English word martyr from, marturia. It's the word, a word the author, uh, John, of this gospel likes to use a lot. He um, uses it here, and it carries the sense of giving a formal declaration or being uh, a person giving witness in a courtroom. That's kind of the idea. It's formal. Just as the martyrs formally testified that they believed that Jesus was the Christ, and they testified to that by being willing to be killed. They believed that like Jesus, they too would, re- would get a resurrected body when he returns as conquering king. So they are willing to give their lives up and they bore testimony to their faith by doing so. And John the Baptist's testimony is about what he understood his role to be. And this, this conversation that he has over the next few paragraphs seems to take place over three days. The first day... John's testimony is about his role, and it's largely negative. It's him saying, I'm not this. This is, I'm not who you think I am, or who you are suggesting I might be. And then on the second day, John gives positive testimony about who Jesus is. And this is verses 29 to 34. And then finally, day three, which we'll look at next week, that's when John actually sends out his disciples who have been following him to actually go and follow Jesus. So as noted initially, this testimony is really his negative assertion that he was not the Christ. That's how he starts. They ask, who are you? And it says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And the reason the writer phrases it this way is to demonstrate that John's denial is actually an affirmation of of who Jesus actually was. See, by denying that he was the Christ, John was the Christ, John was getting himself out of the way to point people to Jesus. He didn't want them to miss Jesus. And the word Christ is the Greek word that's translated, uh, it's the Greek word for Messiah. The anointed one who had been promised by God and who they expected to come and free the Jews from their subjection to the Gentile nations. And John makes it clear that he is certainly not the Messiah or the Christ. So then they ask him, are you Elijah? Now, this might seem strange given the fact that Elijah has been dead hundreds of years. But it's far from a ridiculous question because the Jews were well aware of what the prophet Malachi had prophesied even hundreds of years after Elijah had died. This is what Malachi said in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet 
before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So the Jews recognized that what Malachi was saying is that Elijah would return before the day of the Lord. That is the day of God's judgment when he would pour out his wrath upon the world and which would usher in the coming of the Messiah. And still today, when Jews practice the Passover celebration, they actually pour a cup for Elijah the prophet. And as part of that Passover celebration, the kids will actually get up and run to the door to see if Elijah's there. And it's just ceremony. In fact, we tried to do, we did a little Seder feast at our house just this last weekend. And I told the kids to go see if Elijah's at the door. And they looked at me like, he's not there, Dad. <laughs> they, they thought I was crazy. So I had to get up and do it. And they... Yeah, see? Verbal testimony from Daniel. He wasn't there. <laughs> so, they were expecting Elijah before the coming Messiah's arrival. And, and the, Elijah's purpose was going to be to bring restoration. He was going to uh, turn the hearts of the fathers And the children's hearts back to ultimately following Christ or following the Lord. That's the point. And this is what John the Baptist was doing in baptizing. He was calling for repentance. But he clearly affirms that he is not the Elijah. He's not Elijah. Now, this represents a bit of a problem, if you're familiar with the New Testament, because Jesus actually contradicts this statement. If you turn your Bibles to Matthew 11:14, Jesus directly says, For all the prophets of the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And then in Matthew 17:12, 10 through 12, he says, again, makes that same assertion. And the disciples understood he was speaking of John the Baptist. So the question is, Was John Elijah or not? Who's right here? Well, I think it's fair to make the distinction between the person of Elijah and the person of John the Baptist. They were actually two different people. And it's fair to say that John did the work of Elijah by preparing for Israel for the arrival of the Messiah. So although Jesus does not use the word type here, To describe John the Baptist, it it appears that John is a type of Elijah. And actually, many commentators believe that the actual person of Elijah will return as one of the witnesses described in the book of Revelation who called the nation to repentance right before the second return of the Messiah. So John the Baptist is a, a type, it appears, of Elijah. And Elijah will actually return again as well. And then they ask him if he is the prophet. And this question is stemmed by the statement made by Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15. When Moses says, describing prophets, who to listen to and who not, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And many Jews actually believe that this prophet, singular, the prophet, was actually going to be a specific individual. 
In fact, the Samaritans believed that this prophet would be one and the same person as the Messiah. So however conceived, John makes it clear that he is not the prophet, he is not Elijah, and he is not the Christ. And so having received these three denials, the Jews get even more direct. They say in verse 22, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So John replies using the words of the prophet Isaiah by applying them to himself. He says he is the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And the word crying out actually means to cry out in a loud shout, to make a declaration, to make an announcement. So John understands his role, his identity, simply to be that of announcing the coming of the Messiah. By making way, by making straight the way of the Lord. The emphasis of this section, you'll see, is that John was not what people should be interested in. They're coming to ask about him, and his point is, you shouldn't be interested in me, you should be interested in him who comes after me. He understood that he was relatively unimportant. He recognized that he was merely an arrow, although he was a very significant arrow. But his identity wasn't what mattered so much as what is that people saw who he was pointing to. And this is actually made extremely clear in verse 26 when he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you don't know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So John recognizes he's not even worthy to untie the strap, let alone the sandal of the one who comes after him. And this was considered even one of the lowliest tasks for a slave at that time period. And this is despite the fact that he himself was a prophet. So John's testimony is really of his own unimportance. That's what John's testimony is. I am not that important. And consider this in light of what Jesus said of him in Matthew 11. Verse 11, Jesus said about John, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Okay, that's everybody except himself. And John said, I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of the Messiah's sandal. Now, although we might be prone to make overstatements in our culture, John is not making an overstatement here. John is speaking the truth. He was unworthy to even touch the Messiah, despite his relatively righteous life, despite the fact that he lived such a sacrificial life living out in the wilderness. He was a powerful and bold preacher. And he had a significant role, one that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Despite all those things, John is right. He is not worthy to even touch the Messiah. Why? Because although John was a prophet, John was still a sinner. 
And sin is unworthy to be in the presence of the Holy One. And as great as John was, even he was unworthy. Even he needed to be cleansed by sin. And this is why after proclaiming the greatness of John in Matthew 11:11, Jesus says this, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The point being that all who enter the kingdom of heaven will be cleansed from their sin. They'll be made holy. Because of the death of the Lamb of God. And the point is, what matters in this life is not how faithful you are. It's not what you do. It's not who you are. It's whose you are. That's the point. Real significance, real life is found by believing in Jesus the Christ. And those who recognize it, those who get that, demonstrate their faith in no longer living for themselves, but living for him who died and rose again on their behalf. They live for him, no longer for themselves. They don't spend their time trying to draw attention to themselves, but they want to point to him, just like John is doing. Their life is about Jesus. Because they recognize people don't need me. I am not what people need. Ultimately speaking, I am not what matters. I can't save people. They recognize I can't free them from their sin, no matter how much good counsel I give them. I can't give them the life that they're craving. And so recognizing these things, they desperately just try to keep pointing people to Jesus. Because people need Jesus. They don't need us. And that's what John recognized. And like John, we need to realize that we're merely preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah into people's lives. And even as a church, our role is merely preparing the way for the Messiah for his return. The second time. And we prepare the way by preaching the gospel so that the ends of the world might hear. So it's not we ourselves that are significant. It's our message that's significant. Which brings us to the second point. The work of John the Baptist. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, John says. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of his sandal, I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So after clarifying to his inquisitors who he is, as he's asked about his ministry... He then explains. But before that, John clarifies to us at this point that this delegation has been sent from the Pharisees. And this makes sense because the Pharisees were uh, major leaders in Israel. They were um, influential religious, one of the major political parties in Judaism at the time. And they're very interested in authority. And so when they asked John about why he's doing this, they're really getting to what authority do you have? What is really your role? 
Now, baptism was not a new phenomenon in Jesus' day. There was actually a number of different uh, Jewish groups that would practice baptism. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, but their baptism was actually self-administered. So if a person wanted to become, uh, go from being a Gentile to becoming a Jew, they would actually baptize themselves to, as, a, as a sign of cleansing um, of themselves. And then, they'd get, then they could become proselytes. But John, in his baptism, wasn't calling people to baptize themselves. And he wasn't just calling for Gentiles to baptize themselves. He was actually doing the baptizing, and he was baptizing the Jews. So these Pharisees are concerned about why he's doing it. They must, John must have some purpose in doing these things. That's what they're asking him. Other gospel writers give us a little more insight into John's ministry of baptism. Uh, Please flip to Matthew chapter 3, which will describe John's role. Beginning of verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who's coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So John's role very clearly is he's calling the Jews to repentance, even the Pharisees and Sadducees. And when people would get baptized, they were declaring, they recognized they, they needed to repent and they needed to be cleansed. But John also makes clear his baptism that he's administering is not what's ultimately going to solve their problem. Which is why he points to the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit in verse 11. Their ultimate need was to have new hearts. And that is actually reflective of... What the prophet Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 36. And this is key in understanding the role of John the Baptist and actually how it ties to the Holy Spirit and then eventually actually the resurrection as well. So please turn to Ezekiel 36. It's actually also on the board as well. He says, I will take from you from the nations, take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So the fact that John is baptizing causes eyebrows to be raised. Which is why the delegation from Jerusalem wants to know, why are you baptizing? If you're not one of these end times figures, the Christ, Elijah, or the prophet, what authority do you have to baptize? Why are you doing it? And notice John responds again, not by asserting his genuine call and the authority that he's been given by God. He doesn't talk about that. Notice how he responds to that question. He points to the Messiah. He takes advantage of the question and actually uses it to fulfill his role. It says in verse 27, I baptize with water, but among, among you stands one you don't know. And then we have this brief geographical note by the author that these things take place in Bethany, across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So in the midst of all this, we should ask the question, why does John bring this up, the author John? What he's doing here is he's actually signaling for us to pay attention to something. Anytime you're reading the Bible and something just seems off, it's a, it's a hint to look deeper. And it's, he's signaling the bookends of Jesus' ministry. The beginning of his public ministry and the end of his public ministry. Because at the end of Jesus' public ministry in John chapter 10, there's a review of the ministry of John the Baptist again. And then immediately after this account of John's testimony, you have the account of Jesus raising Lazarus out of the grave, which takes place near the town of Bethany. Now, it's a different Bethany than here. It's death Bethany near Jerusalem. But I think that's why he's bringing this up, kind of a bookend. Bethany at both the beginning and the end of his ministry. But it gets deeper. Notice the effect of the event of raising Lazarus from the dead. If you'd flip to John chapter 10, or sorry, John 11, verse 45. John 11, verse 45. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied, that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Which brings us actually back to the testimony of John, chapter 1, verse 29, when John says in verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So you have the preparation for the slaughter of the Lamb of God at the end of Jesus' ministry. 
And here you have the announcement that he is the Lamb of God. He calls him the Lamb of God. This is a very strange thing to call Jesus. And we might not be surprised by this. 2,000 years after Jesus' life, we know he's described as the Lamb of God. But to call a person the Lamb of God in first century Israel would have been a remarkable statement indeed. Because, especially if this, was, this event was taking place at the time of the Passover, which there's many hints that it was, when they heard Lamb of God, they had been thinking of the Passover lamb that was sacrificed, reminiscent of the lamb whose blood was put over the doorposts of Egypt on the night when the angel of the Lord passed over the Israelite homes that had the blood on it and killed the firstborn son. The lamb was the animal that God had designated to be sacrificed during the Passover. So associating that sacrifice with a man would have been nothing short of disturbing. I mean, he's, he's speaking of human sacrifice. It would make little sense to one who's not expecting the statement. Moreover, the fact that Jesus is described as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That statement in itself would have been breathtaking. Takes away the sins of the world. So not only is he the Lamb of God, but he will take away the sins of the world, not just Israel. John goes on to explain that not only will he be a sacrifice for the sins of the world, but then he frankly testifies to the divinity of Christ. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. The word ranks before me, he's just testifying to the supreme worth. It's like social rank is the idea. When he says, because he was before me, he's pointing to the fact that Jesus actually existed prior to him. Now, John knows Jesus. John is Jesus's older cousin, about six months older. John knows who Jesus is. And he says, he existed before me. Pointing to his divinity. And in case we might miss it, John makes it explicit in verse 34 when he says, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. But going back to verse 31, John frankly admits that prior to recent events, he himself wasn't even aware of who Jesus actually was. He didn't know who his cousin actually was. As he says in verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself didn't know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So John certainly knew Jesus. He just didn't understand Jesus' role. It wasn't until he actually baptized Jesus that the full person, the full revelation of who Jesus was finally was made known to John. But again, this this information wasn't revealed to John so that John's curiosity about who the Messiah might be could be satisfied. That's not the reason. John says the reason. So that he might be revealed to Israel. 
God revealed who Jesus was to John so that John could point to him, which is what John's doing. And John then narrates how he came to realize this profound reality about his cousin. He explains, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, that's referring to God, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So the special purpose and identity of Jesus is revealed with the emphasized connection with the descent of the Holy Spirit coming up down and remaining upon Jesus. The fact that Jesus has the Spirit remain on him is indicating he will be the one that will accomplish the work prophesied in Ezekiel 36 of spiritual cleansing. See, Jesus will be the one who pours out the Spirit because the Spirit remains on him. See, remember, the Jews' great need, as revealed in Ezekiel 36, was that they would have their hearts changed through the coming of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Jesus' baptism is far more significant than John's water baptism. Remember the, the phrase, Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and I will put my spirit within you. Israel's need was to have changed hearts. They needed to be born again. They needed to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' death as the Lamb of God is what is going to provide the spiritual cleansing that they need. It's through his blood being shed that they will receive the cleansing. John couldn't offer this cleansing. He could sprinkle them with water. They could go through that ritual. But the death of the Lamb of God was necessary for true spiritual cleansing to take place. But after Jesus died, the promised Holy Spirit could then be poured out in full. And this brings us to the, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and its connection, actually, to the resurrection. So this is Resurrection Sunday. So I, I'm expecting, many of you came expecting to hear something about the resurrection. And I'm not just drawing this in because it's Resurrection Sunday. Understanding the role of the Holy Spirit is critical. It's, it's intricately tied to the resurrection from the dead, as we'll see. It has the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit has everything to do with the resurrection. Because if we keep on reading in Ezekiel, you're going to notice he reveals more about the work of this coming Holy Spirit. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 37, which is just the next it's chapter that after we've been talking about Ezekiel 36. He gets to 37, and it's really part of the same conversation. And God reveals more to Ezekiel about this great blessing that's going to come upon Israel in the form of the Holy Spirit. He starts talking about, he he takes um, Ezekiel to this battlefield where these dry bones are littered all over the place. And he says to Ezekiel in verse 12, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people, 
Notice what he says in verse 14. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. So the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is what brings the dead bodies to life. And he's not just speaking of spiritual resurrection. He's talking about physical resurrection. That's the point of taking him out to dry bones, physical bones. Which begs the question, if the coming of the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit is to bring about resurrection from the dead, bringing the dead back to life, how come all who have believed in Jesus, who have died, haven't come back to life as well? How come past believers are still in the grave? Before I answer that question, let's look at the connection between the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit that Peter makes in the book of Acts. If you flip to Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples at the Feast of Pentecost, right after Jesus rose from, uh, ascended back into heaven, Peter, Peter preaches his first sermon explaining why the Holy Spirit has come. And he says this in verse 29, chapter 2, verse 29. Brothers, I may say with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw, again this is speaking of David, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he would not be abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and all of us are witnesses, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, so the death has happened, blood has been shed, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Jesus is gone up to be with the Father. He's received the promise of the Holy Spirit. And now it's being poured out upon all who believe in his name. So the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is the sign that the end has come. That full resurrection is soon going to take place. That's the point. That's the sign that's taking place. And Jesus gives new spiritual life now as a foretaste, as a confirmation of the new physical life that is going to come when he returns. So this initial pouring out of the Holy Spirit is just a taste. It's confirmation. And this is made clear in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says, In him you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, this is referring particularly to our resurrected body, but other things as well, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So God's given us his Holy Spirit when we believe in Christ as evidence, as a down payment, as confidence that when we die, we too will be raised from the dead just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Because we have the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus had the Holy Spirit descend upon him. The reason that the dead are not raised yet physically, even though they might have believed in Jesus, is because Jesus is waiting 
for all those who are far off to hear. So that they too might receive the offer of salvation. And Peter makes this clear in Acts uh, 2, beginning in verse 37. So skip over a chunk of the sermon and he says this. And now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And when the ends of the earth have heard, when the gospel has gone out to the nations, as Jesus called the church to do at the Great Commission, when that work is accomplished, Jesus will return and the Holy Spirit will be poured out and actually in full and give new life, new physical life to all who have believed in him at the resurrection. And Jesus' resurrection was the evidence that all who believe in him, they too will also be raised. And so you too can know now that if you are a follower of Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you too can have confidence that you will be raised from the dead after you die. Just as Jesus did. So going back to the original question, who are you? What is your identity? What is your work? What is your testimony? When you meet a person, what do you think is the most important thing for them to know about you? For John the Baptist, and those who truly understand who Jesus is, they recognize that they're simply arrows. They're simply arrows meant to point to him because he is the one that they need, that the, that the world needs. Can you testify to the reality that your heart has been changed by the Holy Spirit? That you no longer live for yourself, that your life is about pointing people to Christ. That you have died to your sin. It doesn't mean you've stopped sinning. It means that you no longer live for sin. You've repented from it. You've sought to live a life that honors Christ and not is following the way of this decaying world. If your heart has been changed by the Holy Spirit, you will live such a life. But if not, you recognize you're still dead in your sin. Call out to Him. Ask God to change your heart. To give you a new heart that would not love yourself. That would not think that, the, that you are what is supremely significant in this life. You would recognize you were created to worship your Creator. And the reality is, you're not naturally going to want that. In fact, you might be thinking, that sounds crazy. Who would want to live for this guy Jesus? Well, the answer is he's God. He created you. That's why. 
But you might recognize in your heart, I just can't imagine not putting myself first. Well, if you want your heart to be changed, that's evidence it needs to be changed. Ask God to change it. That He would give you His Holy Spirit and give you a new heart now. So that when the Son of God returns, you will receive a resurrected body. You will not remain in the grave. You will rise again. And you will be given eternal life. And that is the hope that we have in our risen Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have given us hope. A hope that is not bound in this life. So that even when we face affliction, when things don't go our way, that we don't just have to be self-pitiful. We recognize that our significance and worth is bound up in you. And that even though they, they, that we look at somebody like John the Baptist, and even though he was treated horribly, having his head chopped off for a dancing girl's request, we too might be treated similarly and know it's okay. Because our significance is not how people treat us. It's not how people think of us. It's being in You. You are everything to us, Jesus. And so we can let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, but Your truth abideth still. So I pray as we go out from this room, the resurrection would not just be a word, it would be something we look forward to. As we look at Jesus and have confidence that what happened to Jesus because we're in Him, will be ours as well. Help us to live with such sacrificial lives that want to bring the world to a knowledge of You. Empower us to do that, God, because we need Your help. We want to be faithful to what You've called us because You alone are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. We pray these things in Christ's name.